Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome, fellow time travellers. Good to have you back. I hope all is well with you and yours. Before today's episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about my Patreon site, uh, which helps to support the making of this podcast, which is and always will be free. Uh, The Patreon site is full of history, full of comment, full of my opinions and thoughts and philosophising, if I can call it that. Every week I add a new vodcast. Uh, It's exclusive to Patreon and it's filmed here at my home in Stirling. Uh, For folks who are new to the site, there's a whole archive of videos to catch up on. All sorts of things. I mean, too many subjects to list. It's a cornucopia. Uh, We run the odd competition or two. To join me, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver. I would really appreciate your support. uh, And apart from anything else, it'd be great to have as many of you as possible along for the ride. Okay, time to lace up your boots as we walk in the footsteps of the person who galvanised a population as it faced a clear and present danger. He told him that he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. In this episode, we're walking through Grand Gardens to the palace where a legend was born. One of the largest houses ever built in England, 187 rooms, with the buildings of the palace alone covering seven acres. Construction started in 1705 and took nearly 30 years to finish. It was given as a royal thank you for valour and victory after a decisive clash in the War of the Spanish Succession. Generations later, It was the birthplace of Winston Churchill, who was famous for his failures and also for his great, luminous, immortal successes. Churchill will always be remembered for his stirring declaration, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall never surrender. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we watched tough, hard-working, Clyde-built men construct some of the world's great ships. Where are we this week? We're leaving the shipyard workers behind, Paul, uh, those who were forging a new age in the harsh industrial landscapes of Clyde Bank, and travelling to the beautiful 
manicured gardens of a palatial palace where a man was born who would help to define his times were in the gently rolling countryside of Oxfordshire at the home where Winston Churchill was born Blenheim Palace in Woodstock The location of the love letter to the British Isles this week, Paul, is Blenheim Palace. guess a lot of people will have heard of it. It's in, well, really the village of Woodstock in Oxfordshire. I think really technically it's a market town. That's how it's characterised, but it's very pretty nonetheless. And really before I get into it, Blenheim Palace is, is the location for a love letter because... I think this thought in a lot of places, but I get a sense of it in Blenheim Palace, particularly. It was the birthplace of Winston Churchill. I don't know how many people would just instantly make that connection, but his grandfather was John Spencer Churchill, the seventh Duke of Marlborough. So that's why he's a Churchill, and that's why he was born in Blenheim Palace, because Blenheim Palace was, we'll get, we'll develop this thought later on, but it was It was the gift of a grateful nation to John Churchill, who was made the first Duke of Marlborough as a reward for his part in the victory at the Battle of Blenheim uh, during the War of the Spanish Succession. The Queen gave him the land and a vast sum of money and the titles so that he could build Blenheim. Now, we'll get to all of that, but Winston Churchill, he's often maligned nowadays rather than a hero that he was some kind of a monster. There's all sorts of stories told about him now, but you know, terrible things that he's alleged to have done. And where for the longest time after the war, he was he was regarded as a hero, and I regard him as a hero. He's not an instantly straightforward character. Complex. He's a complex figure, but I think he's rightly regarded and thought of and held up as a as a hero, and. Here's the thing it makes me think about. Britain doesn't really exist. There's an archipelago on the the planet, obviously, and for 2,000 years or so, it's, it's been more or less called Britain. But it's only Britain if a substantial number of people here and abroad believe it's Britain. A nation, any nation, is largely a figment of collective imagination. In the same way that London's only London because people accept that it's London. I mean, if you just look at it objectively, it's just lots of houses and streets and green spaces and and towering buildings. It becomes London because that's what the people living there, or the majority of them, believe it to be. They call it that and they accept it that. But if there aren't enough people that believe London's London, or that Glasgow's Glasgow, or that Britain's Britain, then... Britain, Glasgow and London cease to be. And you just have these places, these geographical entities. A place like Britain is Britain because people believe certain things about the place. They have a collective consciousness about what the place stands for, what it means in the world. They all agree broadly that Britain is the same thing. You know, if everyone regarded it differently, it'd be hopeless. But for Britain to be Britain, there has to be a collective acceptance of what is essentially a figment of imagination. And for a lot of people alive today, although fewer and fewer of them with every passing year, 
got a great sense of what Britain was out of the Second World War. Britain stood alone for a time in the world. Everyone else was, was appeasing Hitler or trying to imagine that he wasn't all bad. And eventually, of course, many people came together to defeat Hitler and his Nazis. But there was, there was a period of time when Britain stood alone. And to begin with, Winston Churchill stood alone. You know, his was the first voice raised in opposition to Hitler and appeasement. And he saw Hitler for what he was, saw the threat, and began the unimaginably laborious, Herculean task of galvanising the rest of the population. And then eventually, of course, the Soviet Union got involved and, and America got involved and Hitler and his Nazis were, were overwhelmed. You know, they weren't defeated by the British. But there was a time when Britain stood alone, and that is an undeniable fact. And many people got a sense of Britishness out of that period. The coming together in the face of the Blitz, the rallying round, the, you know, the acceptance of the privations, joining the armed forces, going abroad, risking lives, giving lives, all of that gave succeeding generations a sense of Britishness that lasted. And it, it was a collective understanding. So that when I think about Blenheim Palace, and I've put Blenheim Palace in this love letter, or, or there's a love letter from Blenheim Palace, because I feel that sense of Britishness very acutely when I think about Churchill. And when I go to Blenheim Palace and I know that he was born there, it becomes an epicentre in my imagination for what Britain is and what Britain has meant collectively to millions of people for all of those years since the Second World War. In a similar vein, you were talking on your Patreon site recently about Elizabeth I and how she began developing a notion of Englishness. Yes, it's a, it's a long ongoing process, giving people a sense of nationhood and giving a place like Britain or indeed anywhere, be it a town, be it a city, be it a nation, you know, to give it an identity is a work of humankind. That is something that we impose upon a place and it's made of history it's made of heritage it's made of culture and you know that's why Britain is different from France, is different from Spain is different from Brazil is different from Serbia because in each of those places a majority of people have a sense of what the place is what made it what constitutes its being and for me there's something about modern Britishness that has its roots in Blenheim Palace. It's a notion that I think about in the context of people listening to the love letter to the British Isles in its entirety. I feel it very strongly. I, I often think about the fact that places that we care so much about, Britain, London, Cardiff, whatever, they don't exist in any absolute sense. There's a great line, there's, a, there's an, a Canadian anthropologist and author called Wade Davis and he's written some wonderful books, um, including Into the Silence. The thread running through it is Mallory and Irvin's attempt on Everest in the years after the First World War. And of course they were, they were ultimately 
Well, the, the jury is out. There's a belief that perhaps they did get to the summit, but that they died on the way back down. They were seen sort of disappearing into the silence, as it were. And then many years later, their bodies were found. And there's no way of knowing whether they were the first people to summit Everest or not. Some people think that they had the chance, that it's believable. Others say, no, it wasn't until Tenzing Norgay and, and Edmund Hillary that Everest was summited for the first time many years later. But Wade Davis has a great theme of thinking where he says something along the lines of the world into which you are born does not exist, not in any absolute sense. Rather, it's a model of reality. And the other people of the world and the other cultures of the world are not failed attempts at being you. Rather, they are each of them unique answers to the fundamental question of what it is to be human and alive. So different people in different places have come up with different ideas of what it means to be alive. And they have different ideas of the place where they live. That's why all the countries are different one from another. But I think very much that Britain feels like at the moment that it's going through a sustained period of change. And to some extent, I think Britain is being altered at the atomic level. It's being altered. You know, what Britain has been for a long time and for a lot of generations, I think, is in the process of, of changing. And I, I think a lot of people sense that. And it's woven through a wider anxiety that people have. Because on the one hand, there's the country that they, perhaps they were born into and grew up. You know, you acquire a sense of the place because you live there. And if it starts to change fundamentally, that's unsettling for people. That which has been familiar, that which they have counted on, that which they imagined would always be there, would be there for their children and their grandchildren, when they get a sense that actually maybe not, maybe their children are going to grow up in a very different place. That can be the root of a lot of uncertainty and anxiety that's out there in the world at the moment. I think many people, even if they haven't put it into words, even if it's subconscious rather than conscious, I think a lot of people detect that Britain is changing. And for good or ill, I think that's unsettling for a lot of people. But none of that's really about Blenheim Palace, is it? I'm rambling. I'm rambling dangerously. <laughs> so to get to Blenheim Palace, it's always been a place that has divided opinion. The palace itself um, has, has always divided opinion because some people think it's an architectural marvel and other people don't. <laughs> it depends. And a lot of people would be able to say that famously the gardens were the work of Lancelot Capability Brown. And he went for this very, rather than a formal garden, he went for this natural look. It's man-made. It's as man-made and artificial as any garden, but he conspired to make it look like natural ponds and natural waterways and hills and a, a rolling landscape. So Churchill, our Churchill, Winston Churchill, was the son of Lord Randolph Churchill and Jenny Jerome he was born on the 30th of November, 1874, in Blenheim Palace. And at that time, it was the home of his paternal grandfather, whom I've already mentioned, John Spencer Churchill, the 7th Duke of Marlborough. It was a gift. It began as a gift. John Churchill, the 1st Duke of Marlborough. Uh, we've mentioned him before. The Monmouth Rebellion that culminated in the battlefield of Sedgemoor, down in the West Country. Well, although he wasn't the overall commander there, he distinguished himself for his bravery and just his ability to lead. That was in 1685, but he also 
much more significantly, was one of the two men that choreographed the victory in 1704 at the Battle of Blenheim, which is in Bavaria. It was part of the, the War of the Spanish Succession, which rumbled on for years. But what happened in 1704 at Blenheim was incredibly significant. The die was cast, basically. that The victory there, one way and another, secured overall victory. Although the War of the Spanish Succession rumbled on for many years afterward. The War of the Spanish Succession was kicked off by the death of King Charles II of Spain. He had his last breath in 1700. And with a kind of a last stroke of the pen, he decided to leave his empire, his demean, to his grand-nephew, who was Philip, Duke of Anjou. Now, that Philip was also the grandson of King Louis IX of France. But before King Charles II of Spain died, the other powerful players across Europe had predicted what a nightmare it might be <laughs> if all of that territory was to be under the bottom of one man. They had foreseen that this could happen, that on the death of Charles of Spain, that was the inheritance to go to Philip, Duke of Anjou, it would be problematic because that would bring together a vast part of Europe and therefore a meaningful part of the world would be dominated by the House of Bourbon. And that was regarded as too much power in the hands of one. Basically, all you have to take from the run-up to the War of the Spanish Succession was that it had been predicted that if one man inherited all of that, it would be bad news for everyone. And so before Charles died, there had been all sorts of treaties and agreements cast about and signed up in hopes of making sure that on Charles's death, that mass would be sufficiently broken up that it wouldn't prove too much of a threat to everybody else. As Charles grew progressively weaker and, and was getting closer and closer to death, most of the European powers felt they had the problem sorted. So it was a terrible shock when practically with his last breath on his deathbed, he decided against all advice to make his heir, Philip of Anjou. All at once, the prospect of that monolithic empire was made real. And it led to war because the powers in Europe just weren't going to wear it. And so they went to war to make it stop. So there you have it. That's, the, that's what triggers the war of the Spanish succession. Who would succeed to the throne of Spain? Hostilities kicked off in 1701 and it lasted for 13 years. So you can see that because Blenheim came in 1704, it's early on, but it was a very important moment. Churchill was acting in concert with Prince Eugene of Savoy, another very gifted tactical genius. And together they conspired and they worked in concert and they achieved together the victory at Blenheim. And it meant that the French were so wounded in that engagement that they never really recovered. Although the war went on, the fatal blow was struck in 1704. And so subsequently, after it was all all was said and done, it was that humbling of that French army at Blenheim that encouraged or, or inspired the monarch to make a gift of what becomes Blenheim Palace. It was built on the site of a former royal manor. Queen Anne, for she it was, who was on the throne, she instructed Parliament to give him a quarter of a million pounds 
which in the early decades of the 18th century was a pretty tidy sum. <laughs> uh, so he's got wealth beyond the dreams of, of avarice. His wife was Sarah, and she was a close friend of Queen Anne. And she was also a fan of Christopher Wren, who, as everyone knows, was a distinguished architect, St Paul's Cathedral and all of that. So Queen Anne and Sarah Churchill, they would have preferred to see Christopher Wren take on the job. But Churchill, John Churchill, was by that time friends with a young upcoming playwright called John Vanborough. And as well as a playwright, he was also kind of trying his hand at architecture. <laughs> you can imagine. You can imagine, OK? So, you know, he is, is big friends with Churchill. And Vanborough is also bonded to another architect called Nicholas Hawksmoor. Now, people in London know about the Hawksmoor churches and so on. And Hawksmoor, he already had previous, he had been cooking up the confection that became Castle Howard in North Yorkshire. That was the work of Nicholas Hawksmoor. And Churchill basically fancied something as good as that. He'd had a look at Castle Howard in North Yorkshire and he wanted something of the order of that, if not grander, for his palace at Blenheim. But the fact of the matter was, by choosing Vanborough as his lead architect, he, he put his wife in the huff. Sarah didn't like that idea at all. He was a genius in many ways. He was a master tactician, but it would seem that he, as a husband, he was less adept. In any event, Blenheim was a poison chalice. The original concept that Vanborough came up with was unbelievably extravagant and right away annoyed people. People couldn't believe how grandiose it was going to be. And Vanborough fell from favour and he was put off the job altogether and, you know, he barely worked as an architect ever again. And so Hawksmoor had to pick up the tools, so to speak, and he had to carry on with the job. It's running for years now. It began to suck in more and more money. Parliament balked at the cost. Sarah Churchill fell out with the Queen. <laughs> so her previous friend, the Queen, fell out. So, long before it's finished, the job's become a bit of a problem for all concerned. The lead architect, Vanborough, is off the job. His co-conspirator... Hawksmoor is doing his best, but it becomes bedeviled by financial problems. The relationships between Churchill, his wife, her friend the Queen, it all becomes messy. There's something very modern sounding about it. It's like watching an episode of Grand Designs, <laughs> where the story becomes more about the couple falling out than it is about the house. But it's completed by the early 1730s. That's how long it took. So the battle that it commemorated was over and done with in 1704 and it's in the mid-1730s that Blenheim Palace is actually completed and it has separated, divided and polarised architectural opinion ever since. Vanborough had planned the gardens, formal gardens, but the present park, as I said before, was by Lancelot, nicknamed Capability Brown. He was employed by the fourth duke in the late 1800s. It had nothing to do with John Churchill and his wife. That came much later. And in many ways, it's that. It's the gardens that make Blenheim the famous entity that it is. It covers 2,000 acres, the estate. Okay? And the house alone covers seven. It's a seven-acre house. Wow. Yeah. That, that's massive, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's a seven-acre house. There's 187 rooms. And within it, it's stuffed with art there's 10,000 books on the library shelves. Many of them are historically significant, along with the art. It's described, I think I'm right in saying it's Baroque, 
for people like us, I don't, well, certainly someone like me, I, I don't consider myself as having much of a, I don't have a very specialised aesthetic sense, but I just think it looks extraordinary. I am awestruck by it. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel qualified to evaluate its architectural merits, but it's quite a place. But for others, it has inspired everything, wonder, love, hate, you name it. It's the only accommodation not occupied by a member of the royal family or a bishop that is accurately described as a palace. A palace is lived in either by a bishop or by a monarch or one of her kids. Not Blenheim Palace though. So it's unique in that respect. And it's undoubtedly more impressive than any house, palace, castle or whatever inhabited by any British monarch. But I always think Buckingham Palace is a, is a dreary looking building. Or that part of it you can see from the roundabout, I think it looks like an <laughs> office block. The bit behind the scenes in the gardens I'm sure is, 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 is a lot more attractive, but I've never been there. So that Buckingham Palace, the image that I have in my head, is very dreary. And apparently when King George III visited Blenheim in 1786, he turned to his wife Queen Charlotte and whispered, we have nothing to equal this. <laughs> and Hitler... Adolf Hitler was so enamoured of Blenheim that he planned to make it his home after the war. And so legend has it that he instructed the Luftwaffe not to bomb it. <laughs> right, so yeah, it's, it's quite the place. So that is the background then to the birthplace of Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. He was born there, spent his first years there. As is so often the case with aristocratic types, he had a very distant relationship with his parents then he was unhappy at private school, boarding school. He had to take three attempts to pass the entrance exam for Sandhurst to get into officer training. I think you would say that he was he flowered late, our Winston. He was unpromising to begin with, but it all came good long before the end. He had his disasters, though, well known. He was first Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War, and he it was who took the blame for the disaster that was Gallipoli. And in those days, in those days, people responsible for those kind of disasters tended to step away, which is what he did. He fell from favour, even within the Conservative Party itself. And during the 1930s, he had his wilderness years, as he described them. He was gradually rehabilitated because history shows that he was a man of talents, controversial man but undoubted talents and undoubted abilities and at the outbreak of the Second World War he was made First Lord of the Admiralty for the second time he got his old job back such was the extent of his rehabilitation and then of course as most people know the then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was trying to avoid war you know he's probably been unfairly castigated really Chamberlain you know he's, he's people tend to think of him as having been a sort of a maybe a weak figure who was duped by Hitler, but I think he did understand the threat of Hitler, but he didn't want war. I mean, these were people who, who knew the First World War. They didn't want to go there again. And Britain was not ready. Britain was not armed and prepared for another global conflict. But in any event, Chamberlain tried to avoid war, but his plans fell around him and he ended up looking as if he'd been outmanoeuvred by Adolf Hitler. And maybe to some extent he didn't fully understand the threat of Hitler and his Nazis. And it was into that 
vacuum into that void that Churchill stepped. Chamberlain resigned in May 1940 and Soon thereafter, after a lot of kind of backroom negotiations and whatever, because Churchill was not in any way universally loved, not at all, not at that time, but one way or another, he was chosen as the leader to replace Chamberlain. I don't know, maybe they thought he was the least worst option, I think, and he was someone that, that the parties across the chamber could coalesce around. So he becomes, uh, he becomes Prime Minister at that point. He was 65 which, you know, even by today's standards, you know, that's retirement age. But being made Prime Minister seemed to give him, I don't know, the energy of a man half his age. And I mean, what can you say about him, really, before and after the Battle of Britain? He stood up in the Commons and, and made speeches that inspired belief, inspired belief in Britain, inspired people, persuaded people that victory was there to be had, that it was to be pursued. He told them that he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. He vowed that he and his fellow Britons would fight on the seas and on the oceans, on the beaches and in the streets. And of course he looked up into the sky and watched spitfires and hurricanes and appreciated like no one else the priceless endeavour of the few. If you go to Blenheim now, there are walks that you can go on and they, they kind of connect up places that are supposed to be features or, or landmarks in the story of Winston Churchill, his early years. The love of his life was Clementine Hosier and it was in the Temple of Diana, which is a kind of a folly in the grounds of Blenheim Palace, that he proposed to her and the legend is that he nearly blew it. She was in Blenheim, he was in Blenheim, but he slept in on the morning in question and she was, she was about to depart for London. Uh, and apparently it was his cousin, the Ninth Duke, who, knowing Winston's intentions, took Clementine out riding to slow her down, <laughs> to, to keep her in Blenheim. And Churchill woke up and got himself organised just in time to go and pop the question. And uh, she said yes, there in the Temple of Diana, and they, were, they, were, they remained uh, happily married, let's say, until his death at the age of 90. Two miles from Blenheim Palace is the village of Bladen and therein is the graveyard of St Martin's Church and he's buried there in the Churchill family plot. So, you know, if you go to Blenheim and then just two miles away in that churchyard, you're looking at the two bookends of his life, his beginning and then his last resting place. It, what can you say about Blenheim? What can you say about Churchill? It, it's grand. I don't think there's any other word for it. It's a leviathan. But Churchill was bigger. Churchill was bigger than Blenheim. I've always been in the habit of memorising things. Phrases, poetry, you know, lines from films, all the rest of it. It's a, a sort of game I play with myself. And long, long ago, I came across a paragraph that was written in January 1965, Churchill was dead uh, and he lay in state in Westminster Hall so that people could come and pay their last respects. And Vincent Mulcrone, regarded by some as the finest journalist of his generation, he went to Westminster Hall and watched and observed. And the opening paragraph of the front page story that he wrote to cover the event reads, 
Two rivers run silently through London tonight and one is made of people. Dark and quiet as the nighttime Thames itself, it flows through Westminster Hall, eddying about the foot of the rock called Churchill. Journalists don't write stuff like that anymore, do they? <laughs> Two rivers run silently through London tonight and one is made of people. Dark and quiet as the nighttime Thames itself, it flows through Westminster Hall, eddying about the foot of the rock called Churchill. And that's what he was. He was a fixed point that the nation could trust at a time when they needed someone to trust. He persuaded them that Britain was real. Britain was something that it was their obligation to preserve and to protect and, if necessary, to die for. And long after he was gone, the sense of Britain and Britishness that he inspired prevailed. And for some people, his idea of what Britain meant, had meant, meant to the world, and you might say will always mean, comes from Churchill. Operation Overlord is go. Plans to invade and liberate Europe are drawn up. Amphibious landings on five beaches in Normandy are put in place. Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno and Sword. Hitler was ready and defended. Allied preparation and rehearsal were vital and training simulation had to be as realistic as possible. And so Exercise Tiger was the undertaking. A heady mix of live ammunition and miscommunication. German machine guns and secret documents. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And why not write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends? For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. So, Robert, tell the people, what's a pretendian? It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us? Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs> 